0: Welcome to Accelerating Government with act IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren.
1: Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On today's episode, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by John Cotter, best-selling author, award-winning business and management thought leader, Harvard professor, and the chairman of Cotter International. John's new book is titled Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. And if there was ever a book for our time, this is it. Welcome to the show, John.
0: Well, thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's great to have an opportunity to chat with you. The last time that we talked was when you were gracious enough to keynote the ACT-IAC Imagination ELC conference in the fall of 2020. And at that time, you were in the deep throes of final writing and editing of the book, which I'm delighted to say is now available, available for purchase wherever great books are sold. So there's so much to catch up on, but why don't we just start with the book? Change takes on a topic that you've been passionate about for a long time, but looks at it through a new lens on both, I'll say, the current frenetic pace of our environment and also advances in the science of the human brain. So why don't we start with, what inspired you to take on this new book project?
0: Well, it was those two factors in particular. The measures we have on the volatility, the speed, the uncertainty created by change keep going up. And to the point where organizations, public and private, and individuals are often struggling to adapt fast enough to adapt agilely enough, even beyond what has worked in the past and we've researched pretty carefully. And the second thing is that we decided that the work that's been done mostly in the last 40 years on trying to get an understanding of human nature through brain research, not just through philosophizing, has actually made, because of technology, some big leaps and if you dig through it all there are some critical insights that help us to understand why people tend to struggle with change and once you see those it can lead you to the question of why do organizations struggle too and the answer is basically the same we as homo sapiens were created at least a hundred thousand years ago in a world that was so different from today that I doubt, Dave, that you and I could even conceive of what it was like back then, especially along the dimension of how much changes. I was thinking a time machine could take us back 100,000 years and we could observe some tribe and then take us back 100,000 plus 100 years and we would see no difference, literally no difference. Compare that to today, 2022 now versus 1922. Um, So people were built for a very different environment and that is uh, making it more difficult. Organizations of the kind that we take for granted as just what organizations are are mostly the product of the last part of the last century. They're a function of the Industrial Revolution and trying to gain uh, from it better and cheaper products and services served to more people. But that environment, the 1870s, for example, in the United States is very, very, very different than the environment today. And again, on the whole question of speed of change, volatility, much slower. So with that in mind, we decided to dig in and see if we could shine some more light on both of that and then take it to the question of, so what do you do about it? The people who are handling this much better than average, what are they doing?
1: In the beginning of the book, there's a powerful introduction, as you just pointed out, about this nature, about human nature and organizational design are not built for today. And, and this pace of change that we find, and they're both worth digging into a little bit. But why don't we start first with the sort of hardwiring of the human brain and the challenges that the human brain has in dealing with this rapid change? Because as you said, for thousands of years, it was like, you know, survival. And now it's at this constant rate of discordant and difficult change.
0: Until I really started looking into this, I don't think I nearly, came close to appreciating how powerful we have built into us a kind of a biological system that is designed with one purpose in mind and that is our own survival. It's like it's a radar system that's looking for threats all the time that uh, when it perceives something that it thinks is a threat, sends out chemicals that pump up our blood Uh, get our muscles ready so we can jump, run, hit, whatever, to uh, get away from or defeat the threat. That system was designed, of course, as we said already, for physical threats, basically. You know, the fabled uh, saber-toothed tiger coming along, and we instantly, because of this system, without thinking much about it, focus on the problem in one second and climb a tree in the next second, and it saves us. And it's why we're able to be talking on this show today, as opposed to being wiped out like 99% of the species over the many millennia. But that system, in a way that we're not really conscious of, is overwhelmed almost these days. The number, Things that come at us through our work, through social media, through cable news, through newspapers, through the latest rumor in the hallway or at your last Zoom meeting, that can be perceived as threats is, you know, a hundred times as much, a thousand times as much as it was back when the system was developed. And what can happen oh so easily is it, in a sense, it overheats. And once it overheats, it thinks not in terms of, ooh, things are changing. Good. There are opportunities here. Let's figure out a clever way to adapt and get stronger. It just hunkers down. We see it as resisting change. And it happens all the time, every day among the educated and the not very well educated, and we're not aware of it. And we need to become much more aware of it. The good news is there's a second system also built into us that was designed to help us evolve, not just survive, but prosper. It has a radar system aimed more at looking for opportunities it sends out chemical signals too to our bodies that are felt emotionally more as passion or excitement as opposed to fear, anger, anxiety. And as long as we can uh, take some action that our bodies feel in our heads and our nervous systems feel we're making progress, we can maintain not a peak level of uh, energy, but a high level of energy for a significant period of time until we capitalize on that uh, opportunity. So that's there, but it needs to be activated. And the fundamental problem in the world today is that far too many people and far too many organizations are in a state of, if you will, overheated survive and underactivated
1: thrive. You've mentioned to me a couple of times in the past that, uh, you know, the saying that we often hear about, we have to thrive, not just survive, is kind of a trite saying that sort of misses the point. And I think what I'm hearing from you is we have to make sure we don't over the survive while we activate the thrive.
0: Absolutely. Now, we want the survive to work, <laughs> but the way it was designed to work and not Shut down, thrive. Uh, we need thrive in an era of rapid, mobile, volatile change.
1: Excellent. There is so much more to cover. We're going to take a short break. I'm Dave Wintergren. We're talking with John Cotter, best-selling author and Harvard professor, about his new book, Change. We'll be back in just a moment with more on accelerating government, brought to you by ActiAct on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with act I'm Dave Wenergren, and today we're talking with John Cotter, bestselling author, award-winning business and management thought leader, Harvard professor, and chairman of Cotter International, about his new book, Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. Changes available for purchase, and I highly recommend it as a crucial read for the times that we find ourselves in when we were wrapping up for the last break. we were talking about the need for us to understand the human brain and how it works so that we don 't make everybody be resistant to change because they 're overactivating their survive mechanism. but you also make the point early in the book that it's not just us as individuals it 's actually been decades of organizational model teaching that may be no longer as relevant as it once was. Can we talk a little bit maybe now about, you know, why does the current organization model that companies and government agencies follow, the hierarchical model, seem to exacerbate the problem of addressing rapid change?
0: Well, first of all, it was invented, not a thousand years ago or 500 years ago. It's mostly the 19th century and mostly the late part of the 19th century. That's when the first business school came along at uh, Penn in around 1870 something. And it was designed to use the findings from the industrial revolution to make cheaper, better products and services and get them and distribute them to a larger market and thus to help society prosper. But the name of the game therefore became How do we standardize, how do we create great efficiencies, how do we make sure that we figure out the best way to make this thing, whatever it is, and get everybody to follow that code so we do make it efficiently and uh, reliably. And that led to the invention of management and a new take on hierarchies that have been around for a long time and uh, planning systems, which didn't exist before and staffing systems and new ways of identifying and measuring things and new ways of solving problems when the data came back that you were off plan. But that was not designed to deal with rapid change. That wasn't the problem we was trying to solve. It was aimed at a different problem for a different time. That system, if anything, wants stability. It's designed to make sure that you don't become grossly, wildly, chaotically inefficient when you put a hundred people or a thousand people or 10,000 people together. They all have the same work from the same book, if you will, the same operating principles. And that does not facilitate agility. It doesn't facilitate adaptation. It facilitates stability and survival. That's what we're still dealing with, although it's been modified to take on a faster-moving world. But if the change in the last century in terms of how fast the world has been moving, has gone from 20 miles an hour to 90 miles an hour. We've taken organizations and brought them from 20 to 40 or 50 or 60. Not good enough. And it's getting in the way and it's causing more and more uh, real challenges for us.
1: The book has so many topics embedded in it that are, I'll say, top of mind for the federal technology market. And uh, I can't emphasize to the audience enough how, how what an important read this is for everyone right now. One of the topics that comes up is a digital transformation, which is a hot topic for the federal government. There was the recent legislation passed on the 21st Century Idea Act, which focuses on digital efforts. It's a, it's a, cornerstone of the Biden administration's president's management agenda, which also has a strong focus on digital solutions. In the book, you use this subject to illustrate some important points about why digital efforts sometimes fail. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of moving beyond the digital elite to embrace the digital masses when change is needed?
0: If you study the digital transformation efforts, large or small, that were disappointing or failures, we found that almost all the time uh, you encounter the same pattern. It's being driven, the whole effort, the whole initiative is being driven by the, if you will, the technologists by themselves. It tends to be a smaller group who take some mission and build something and then kind of turn it on and expect uh, it to somehow serve a purpose. But the, the broader mission purpose is often not clear to the technologists or communicated to the technologists in the first place. And it doesn't get executed because you've got a whole bunch of people who have to interact with this new thing. Who don't understand it, don't believe it, often find it threatening, which means it turns on their survive mechanism, not good. And the solution, uh, which has been shown to work uh, enough that it's pretty convincing, is you don't do digital just with the digital guys. You have a broader community involved in all of these efforts, starting with the people who will be um, most using the new digital solution. And you make sure that there's some clarity about, now, why are we doing this? What's the on the business side or uh, the business purpose or the public policy purpose? What are we trying to achieve? And then uh, allowing for people in various stakeholder groups to provide information, ideas, leadership, so that when you get around to building it, it's not a matter of uh, the technicians operating in a basement room who one day say, we've got it, and then discover, of course, that the users say, but this doesn't work for us. You spot problems early, you correct them and people buy into it because they're involved. So execution happens much faster and better. And at the extremes, what you could do, the speed with which you can handle some of these digital challenges and the quality of the output for the organization and for its its citizens or customers Uh, can be uh, really, really extraordinary these days if it's done correctly.
1: That concept just really resonated with me and all of the experiences I had when I was a technology leader in government. I've often referred to it as a shiny object syndrome, how we sometimes get all liquored up about the IT system itself, you know, or IT for right. its sake only. And we spend more time trying to figure out the clever acronym for the system than we do in tying the system to mission outcomes that matter. And then the, maybe you could just help footstomp that point about why it's so important to align to business objectives.
0: Yeah, because it doesn't happen automatically. And remember, the the only point of technology is to help the mission of the organization. Technology for technology's sake may be interesting in a university, but for the rest of us, it's not the point. It's the mission that's the point. And it's got to be clear to all the people involved. And when it's not you end up with these very expensive systems that just frustrate people.
1: That is music to my ears. I'll say in the federal technology market, the single biggest correlating factor is when systems are developed in a vacuum without the voice of the customer, without the use of more than just the programmers themselves. And then years later, we wonder why nobody likes the system that we came up with. We're talking with John Cotter, world-renowned author and leadership icon about his new book, Change. We're going to take a quick break now. I'm Dave Wintergreen, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT act on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with act -ACT. I'm Dave Wintergreen, and on today's show, we're talking with John Cotter, chairman of Cotter International, best-selling author, Harvard professor, and we're talking about his new book, Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. Change is a hot topic that you have been an expert at for so many years. It's been it's hard to believe. It's been decades since your your the the first great book that you wrote on change came out, but it's just as meaningful today as it was there and it's just as important a topic as it was then. And at the end of the day, it strikes me that the topic of cultural change is probably the single biggest, most crucial element to get right. Why is it so hard to change the culture of an organization?
0: Well, there are a number of reasons. Starting with the fact that culture, unlike the formal organization and structure, really is invisible. I mean, it's fish to water. It's norms of behavior and the underlying shared values that we have a group has about what they think is important and not important. Even when companies or pieces of local or federal government try to write down things about culture, often... It's a small group of people who make their best guess about what the culture is, but they don't necessarily get it right. It's like a lot of what we do as individuals. We're not even totally aware of our own actions and habits. And so that gets in the way. And the second is the methodology that people use to change culture, which flows from the kind of methodology that flows... Uh, from the modern organization that was invented a century ago for anything, to change anything, which is small group, top-down, doesn't work. That's not the way culture changes. Now, having said that, we've seen enough examples of companies successfully making significant changes in their cultures to their benefit. But the method is not appoint a point committee committee sits in meeting room with flip chart, people throw out what the culture ought to be, more risk taking, faster moving, etc. Then they turn it over to communications or internal marketing people who find a way to talk about that and start cascading the message down the organization of, this is the culture we're going to have, or sometimes it sounds like this is the culture that the top management is demanding. And of course, other people look at this and either ignore it or think it's strange or just get upset or go into survival again. Like, oh my, how did they expect me to be able to to behave in this way? I mean, there are so many things blocking it. In reality, culture changes because people start less with words and more with trying to do things in a new way. And it can be at a very small scale. Doesn't have to be across the entire organization or with a big budget. And they get better results and they go out of their way to kind of celebrate that and communicate it and point out that this was not our normal way of doing things, but look, it works under these new conditions. When that happens, inevitably, even if you start with a small group of people who think the culture has to change and are committed to helping you with it, it attracts more people who will then try some new things in their areas, in their departments, in their jobs. A few of those, as long as a few of those actually succeed, produce better results, you get this virtuous cycle going where more celebration, more communication, more people get on board, more people try new things. And over time, mind, mindsets start to change first, then individual habits start to change second, and then finally norms and values, i.e. the organization's culture actually changes. That's how it happens. And um, because culture can be so invisible yet powerful, very often it is getting in the way these days. It's slowing people down. It's not allowing them to adapt to new uh, mission requirements. And without some understanding of what needs to be done and how you could change culture, organizations struggle. And that does not serve any of us well.
1: There are so many important points made in the book, and you touch on a couple of them now, celebrating successes so you don't lose momentum, the need to relentlessly communicate. There's also a fascinating case made in the book about why we need to look beyond what I'll describe as a powerful business idiom that's been with us for a long time about maximizing shareholder value. Why does that vision sometimes lead to less than optimal results?
0: The vision, once it gets absorbed into an organization, and into its culture directs people's attention and in particular senior management's attention and therefore it also directs what they don't pay attention to the world we live in today has our clientele or our customers changing what they want and what they need it has those people who are supplying us with Uh, essential services changing often because of new technologies or global interruptions like the supply chain problem we've got right now in many industries. Employees, of course, have changing needs. COVID has done quite a trip on all of us on that dimension. And an organization that has swallowed culturally this, it's all about shareholders, does pay attention to the financials as they're reported quarterly to shareholders. They do not pay sufficient attention to those other groups and the changes that are occurring within them and that inevitably gets them into trouble
1: have your head down on one myopic measure, then you miss being able to discern the changes that are gonna eat your lunch tomorrow. Another topic that you talk about in the book that again is really timely for our audience today is the difference between implementing an agile methodology and actually being agile. Agile is clearly a top buzzword in the federal market right now, but what are some of the challenges that current organizations face in becoming more agile?
0: Well, again, the agile principles, as they were first articulated some time ago, if you go down the list, they have a lot of common sense validity to them. But the mere fact that some senior executive or some technology group embraces those principles does not translate into an organization embracing those principles principles or an organization being Agile. What you want is not just software developed using a set of principles called Agile. What you want is a whole organization that is a lot more Agile than the standard that was developed a hundred years ago. And that requires certainly a different approach than just somebody finding a list of Hatchel principles on the internet, printing it off and passing the memo around to their colleagues. It requires a whole shift in how you do business, which brings us back to culture as a topic. And it requires more people helping out again ultimately to the final solution for all of this. That is to say, what we have found again and again that differentiates those organizations who can adapt fast enough and agile enough from those who can't, the most central piece is more leadership from more people.
1: Yeah. And that's going to be the next part of our conversation, which we'll talk a little bit about the difference between new companies and established companies, but there's hope for all of us. And that's probably a good place for us to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have more with John Cotter, chairman of Cotter International and bestselling author on his new book, Change, available for sale wherever great books are sold. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, and on today's show, we have the honor of talking with John Cotter, award-winning business and management thought leader, best-selling author, and we're talking about his new book, Change. How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. As we went to break, we were talking a little bit about the idea about being agile and the need to involve the many. You make a great point in the book about the power of what you describe as a dual operating system. Maybe you could talk to the audience a little bit about like, sort of the difference about how startup companies are organized and then how larger companies are organized and how there's like a best of both worlds that's needed.
0: Sure. There's a standard... Life cycle model that fits most organizations, public or private, experiences. They start much more informally with less hierarchy, less policies and procedures, more spontaneous, and they're quicker to adapt and more agile. They've got more leadership coming from more of the people involved. They tend not to have much management. And the good news is, when that's done right, they can innovate and hence can do something that is mission important or in a competitive environment, win against much larger and better financed uh, competitors. That leads to growth. And over pretty quickly, they have to start adding to that network-based, more informal, more communication, more leadership model, something that we would all recognize, which is a more standardized hierarchy with clear procedures to create reliability and efficiencies. And the more successful they are, the more that part grows, And at a certain point in most organizations' history, that part gets to the point where it finds the original piece of the organization that valued quick communication and innovation and trying and failing quickly and all of that stuff annoying. And so it kills it off and you end up with a modern, mature organization. Now, because of that, it has been the expectation and the belief that you have to choose. You can either stay small and be innovative or be big and be efficient, and yet what we need these days in an environment where big organizations are needed in the private sector and in government, and yet they're living in an environment that changes rapidly. Hence, you need more innovation and more agility and more adaptation. You need both. And what we learned from one study done a few years ago is that virtually all organizations at some point early in their history actually do have both working in concert and achieving both the efficiency, the reliability, and the innovation, and the speed. They have both a well-functioning management system, and yet leadership coming from quite a few people. And when you look at what they achieved during that period of their life cycle, that tends to be the highlight of the entire life of the organization. And what we need today, so it's we know it's possible to create these things. It's not a theoretical concept. What we need is uh, young organizations that realize as they grow, they need to intentionally not lose that Uh, more network-based, leadership-based, fast, agile component. And we need big, mature organizations to grow inside them something that looks more like a startup and learn to hook it together with the mothership, if you will, the hierarchical, policy-driven, top-down-driven organization, which you can do. We've done it multiple times over the last decade. And to get the benefits both of efficiency and reliability, yet able to keep up with the speed with which the world is changing all the time.
1: You know, I've just seen it over and over again, large complex organizations, both public and private, particularly prevalent in the in the government market, that uh, that, you know, the status quo of the organization like throws out these antibodies that consume the new idea. And so the only way new ideas start is they can't be part of the fabric of the organization. They have to start as a pilot or an experiment or something that keeps them away from the program management oversight that would say, well, you know, you're doing this in a, you know, you're not doing this the way the system's supposed to work, and so finding a way to take root. I, I just think the dual operating system is such an important message for our audience today. Leadership is what it all comes down to, and there's so many places that we could go with a leadership conversation. But, but I would like to probably take a moment and reflect upon as you look at the last two years. What are some of the lessons learned from having gone through a pandemic that all leaders should take to heart as they seek to do better in the future, regardless of whether the next wave of uncertainties and Pandemic, or some other thing that we're not expecting.
0: I hope, Dave, that people are consciously or unconsciously processing what's happened over the last few years in a sensible way, and realizing that if there is a central message, it is that our capacity to predict with great precision is is much lower. Than than it has been in the past, because the world is so interconnected and so much is changing. And that has huge implications. Mostly people think bad implications, but the reality is we will come through this pandemic and smart people and some smart agencies and some smart companies are going to be stronger because they learned something, they saw the opportunities that were available that became more obvious as a result of uh, the pandemic. One of which, of course, has to do with all the platforms that are being developed for virtual communication and meetings and the like, which we still don't know how to use best, but we will. Some people will. And If you look at those companies in particular, at least that I've studied, who have turned the last few years from more than just a kind of dispiriting, difficult period, but one in which they've learned and grown, the one thing they have in common is they allow for more people at more levels in more parts of the organization to step forward and provide leadership on initiatives without squashing them or turning them off. And it is that collective energy that does spark innovation and make sure that it can be executed for mission-relevant results
1: the power of the diverse many can help so much as we go forward. It has just been a delight to talk with you today. John John Cotter is the executive chairman of Cotter International, Harvard professor, award-winning business and management thought leader, and best-selling author. His new book is titled Change and subtitled How Organizations Achieve Hard-to-Imagine Results in Uncertain and Volatile Times. It's available for sale on Amazon and elsewhere, and I highly recommend it. It is both fascinating and extremely timely for those hoping to thrive in these times of rapid change and continuing uncertainty. John, thank you for your leadership, your service to the nation, and for taking the time to be here with us today.
0: It's a pleasure to talk to you, Dave, really.
1: I'm Dave Wintergren. Thank you all for joining us. I hope you enjoyed John's insights and the many examples he offered on how we can work together to accelerate mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. You've been listening to Accelerating Government brought to you by Act IAC on Federal News Network. See you next time. Thanks for
0: listening to Accelerating Government with act You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on- Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu.